business and buckets fam we are live episode 68 coming right at you and uh apologize if i'm not as ex- you know energy full and, and and crazy in this episode i actually had a little bit of a, a snowboard crash this weekend um i always say i ski to the conditions and this weekend a little bit of what I call the hot snow, the melted snow that makes you cruise along and got a little cocky, hit a jump, took a bad exit, honestly blacked out, don't even know what happened, but somehow ended up head first and chest first off a 10 foot drop. I was going with some friends that they, they ski blues and greens. We'll put it at that. And we're at a green that was switching back a steep part of a mountain and I think after a couple beers at lunch with the nice sunny day, I was sick of, um, I think I was sick of riding the greens and was just trying to sauce it up a little bit. But in the bad exit, I found myself head first, you know, body first, dropping off one of those switchbacks 10 feet straight into my face, straight into like my sternum, breastbone, chest area, whatever you want to call it. And I, I messed myself up pretty good. I was down for a few minutes, gasping for air, realized that I was okay, seemed that I didn't break anything. Uh, but even breathing hard, I could feel my lungs like expanding in here and hitting whatever it is, and it hurts. Uh, so I got to be careful. But uh, we out here, we live. Um, crazy, crazy wreck. I've never wrecked like that in my life. Uh, It was a weird moment. The goggles had come up and scratched up my forehead, but my chest, man, for the first two days, I could barely move up, you know, any kind of movement with your chest. So getting up in and out of bed, up and down out of my chair, it felt like I was getting stabbed in my chest. Uh, It has actually healed pretty good. It's only Wednesday today. Uh, This happened Saturday later in the day. Uh, So I'm happy with how much it's healed. Wasn't sure if I had to go to the doctor or not. I think I'll be okay. Give it some more time, a little bit more mobile, things of that nature. But definitely a weird injury um, to the chest area. Never injured this. I feel like I'm a quarterback who just had Aaron Donald come and smoke me right into my chest. And if I was a quarterback, my throwing motion, like right here, that any kind of extra mobility hurts for sure. If I was in the NFL, I'm sure the physical therapy would be a little bit better. But it's a crazy injury. I think I'll be okay think I'll be able to avoid a doctor's visit, but just letting you know uh, how to get the skiing in though. I'm ready to go back to the ski hills. I have a ski trip set up next week. Although there is no snow, it looks like it'll be more of a dick around weekend, but let's talk fueled supplements before we talk sports. You know, if it's not broken, why fix it? That's the inspiration behind fueled supplements, newest product, creatine monohydrate. So why take creatine? Well, creatine monohydrate is one of the most well-researched and effective natural supplements available for increasing muscle performance. Creatine enhances performance by supplying a pool of ATP, which acts as the muscle muscle tissue's primary energy source for fuel during explosive bursts of energy, power, and strength. It's 100 servings, non-GMO, gluten-free, safe, and effective. You guys know the deal. Enter my promotion code BUCKETS for 15% off. Once again, promotion code BUCKETS, B-U-C-K-E-T-S. If you've listened to this a few times, you catch yourself, ah, I should check them out. You're buying supplements, 
check out the small business. Uh, we just actually launched today the business edition of Josh Morin, uh, Field Supplements, his story. Really awesome story. One of the most inspiring stories I've heard in a long time. One of the most honest and transparent stories. So check that out if you haven't already, if you like the business episodes. But check out fieldsupplements.com. Great quality supplements. Plus, you get to save while you're doing it. Obviously, it is Super Bowl week. We talked a little bit about it. Saved more of the preview for today's show. Uh, but there's things that have happened around the league, plus um, the, the Pro Bowl weekend. I did not watch any of it. I don't know if you guys did. It's probably the laughing stock of all leagues in their you know, all-star weekend, so to speak. Uh, but around the league, Doug Peterson, officially the head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars, which was such a weird situation with Brian Leftwich. I thought that would be done. The fact that that didn't become a thing, I was bummed. And for the Jacksonville organization fan base and everything in between, I felt bad because I felt like they were about to botch this hiring. But honestly, Doug Peterson in Jacksonville seems like a good fit to me. I'm not opposed to it. I, I love that he gets another chance. Trevor Lawrence seems to be excited. And really, that's going to be the, the big piece is developing Trevor Lawrence. So I'm glad. I think that's a good fit. One of the better fits and better hires, although there was so much drama. Uh, I think they made this a little stretched more than it should be. The 49ers hire Anthony Lynn as assistant head coach. I love this move as well, especially after they had lost. Um, let's see. Where do I have it on the list? Uh, Mike McDaniel, uh, the offensive coordinator running game caller to Miami as their head coach, which is also a great um, hire in my opinion. I think, again, the quarterback development with Tua setting up that offense for success. They do have some weapons. So good moves there, but I really like the Anthony Lynn hire for, for Shanahan and his front office. is an excellent move for them. The Raiders hire ex-defensive coordinator, at, uh, the ex-Giants defensive coordinator as their head coach. Um, I'm not too sure what to think about that. I thought, you know, they were looking at um, the internal move. He had actually le uh, left to go coach elsewhere. Um there's been a lot of gray clouds around the Las Vegas Raiders and what they've done with kind of a video game like team uh, with Gruden there, Mayock being there. Uh, but now they get the ex Giants DC who, you know, the Giants haven't had the most stellar of crews uh, uh, of really units in football. So that to me was a little bit not, you know, it wasn't as stellar as the uh, Doug Peterson hire. Or maybe the Mike McDaniel hire. But uh, for the Steelers, for the Yinzers, Steelers promoting Terrell Austin, the defensive coordinator. I don't think anyone's really surprised. They're always hiring internally. I would have liked to see an external hire. Uh, I was even thinking um, Flores would be a good position, uh, a good coach to be on the defensive coordinator side. But with the rumors of Mike Tomlin mostly calling the plays anyways, this is technically Mike Tomlin again hiring Mike Tomlin. Um, I think though, if Terrell Austin and the defense don't work out that, uh, he's got to let up the reins there. And then they're interviewing Lewis Riddick for the general manager position. I think he, you know, he's a Pittsburgh guy. He played college in Pittsburgh. Uh, I love him in the booth, his mindset, you know, he has been pro scout, uh, head of per player personnel. And I think this would be a good injection of some new thought processes, some new blood, some new energy in that front office. And I think this would be a stellar move. 
I would also like for the Steelers to hire Mike Munchak as a line coach back. Um, so there are some things pending that can make huge moves in the Steelers locker room. Uh, hopefully those play out as uh, us Yenzers would like to. Uh, Lovey Smith hired by the Texans as their head coach. This one caught me by a little bit of a surprise as well. Lovey Smith obviously has great experience, a great resume. Um, but the Texans, man, you know, Flores, when he left, I thought he might get an opportunity there. Uh, just kind of like uh, the Jaguars, for as long as they've known they need to hire and how long they stretched out this process, it makes me wonder why did they just land on Lovey Smith? Why did it take this time? But they do have a guy with plenty of experience and tenure for a very young team that is in a pretty new rebuild. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, the Saints hiring defensive coordinator Dennis Allen as head coach, an internal hire. I'm not too surprised about this. He has had a, done a stellar job as a defensive coordinator for the Saints. He obviously has relationships in that locker room. But with everything going on, uh, I think their head coach, new hire, is uh, signing up for a lot as they have quite this offseason to try to figure out you know, what their strategy is moving forward. At least they don't have Tom Brady in Tampa, supposedly. I would not be surprised if Tom Brady came out of retirement, if this was just a, a, a short-term you know, move for Giselle to you know, make her feel good, then he comes out for one last dance, who knows. But um, at least that division doesn't have to deal with Tom Brady. The Titans head coach Mike Vrabel and general manager John Robinson have been extended. I thought that team was one of the biggest stories. Although they did fall short in the playoffs to be able to be the one seed with King Henry being out, that really shocked me. Uh, A.J. Brown being out for some time as well. Props to that team and what they were able to do through the uh, season. Well-deserved contract extensions. The Giants hire Wink Martindale as defensive coordinator as he was released of that position by the Baltimore Ravens. I think this is a good move as well. Obviously, they lost their defensive coordinator to be the Giant uh, Raiders head coach. So I think this is a perfect move, good experience, good philosophies uh, to take place for the New York football Giants. Obviously, people have probably seen online the Alvin Kamara situation. I haven't seen the footage. I saw a photo of a guy beat up. Supposedly him and a bunch, uh, a couple friends had beat up a couple guys. Um, he got to play in the Pro Bowl. The NFL was aware of it. The NFL can still have some, you know, some consequences down upon him. But for me, it's just more drama in the Saints locker room when they're trying to avoid all these situations. Now they have to deal with that and more drama, um, especially from the one-star player that they have on their team. You do not want to see those types of things where there's smoke, there's fire. Um, he's being involved in these things. You know, maybe a circle of influence, whatever it can be. I would be concerned if I was in the new head coach of the uh, New Orleans Saints and I'd make sure we have this figured out of how to avoid these situations with my star player. Goodell announces that games will be played in Munich and Frankfurt, Germany through 2025. A new international um, contract and agreement to be playing in Germany, which is pretty exciting. Um, I, you know, unless you're the team that has to play there, that's not always as exciting. Uh, but there will be some international American football going down in Germany. Peyton Manning and Eli Manning's Manning cast is not a one and done. They have been extended through 2024. Um, I enjoyed them watching the videos after the game. If it was any kind of game that you wanted to watch, though, 
it's it's hard to watch that and watch the game. Why they're doing it live during the games is kind of surprising to me. I think they honestly should just have a studio show, maybe a pregame show on Monday night, a postgame show where they could still do those interviews. It's great TV, but for fans that want to actually watch the game, um, it doesn't really work out for me. But obviously, people love him. Um, the media goes nuts as Kyler Murray dissociates himself with the Arizona Cardinals on social media. He basically scrubbed his social media of the Arizona Cardinals. And for me, you know, that seems like a, a drastic... Everyone's like, oh, shoot, Kyler Murray wants off the Cardinals. I really do not believe in this because him and Cliff have such a relationship. Cliff's been trying to recruit and get Kyler Murray on his team for so long. He had actually got rid of their previous number one pick, which a lot of controversy in that situation. When he got hired to get rid of uh, Rose, uh, Josh Rosen, right? Am I saying that right? See, I knew he wouldn't be good in the NFL. Yeah, Josh Rosen. Um, now I can't even remember who he is. That's how fast things turn around in the Not For Long League. Anyways, I get rid of Josh Rosen. They bring in Kyler Murray. I saw something on Instagram. Colin Cowherd thinks that it's because he wants to get paid, which makes sense. He's improved every year. The Cardinals have improved every year. So I think that there's a lot more drama. You know, the media loves drama. This is what it is. That's what it is. Clickbait these baits. At Business and Buckets, we aren't about any of that. We're just telling you how it is. And how I think it is is Kyler Murray deserves a paycheck, and I'm not surprised. Other than that, we got the Pro Bowl and the Super Bowl. So in the Pro Bowl, what a game it was. I did not catch any of it. But the AFC won again. I think this is the fifth year in the row, 41-35. to uh, Mac Jones threw the ball the most for the AFC. He was 12 of 16, 112 yards, a touchdown, and a pick. Lots of picks in this game. Herbert, two touchdowns and a pick. Pat Mahomes, a pick. Kyler Murray led the NFC 18 to 27, 160 yards, three touchdowns, and a pick. Russell Wilson, although he won the, the targeting. See, what's the competition? The precision passing. Uh, he took the event by a landslide. He hit nearly every deep target and tallying, tallying a record 29 points. Then he ends up throwing two interceptions in the Pro Bowl. Kirk Cousins, a touchdown and an interception. Uh, the run games did not exist as there is no defense or run games. No one wants to get hurt. Mark Andrews, though, still leading box scores with the most Mark Andrews-like line. Five catches, 82 yards, and two touchdowns. Mike Evans got a touchdown. Kyle Juszczyk, Dalvin Cook, Kyle Pitts got receiving touchdowns. For the AFC, Hunter Renfro with the touchdown as well. And then obviously there was the interceptions. Darius Leonard with the pick six. Kevin Byer, J.C. Jackson, Derwin James, Kenny Moore. And for the NFC, Antoine Winfield, Trayvon Diggs, Marshawn Lattimore, and J.T. Uh, yeah, JT Gray with interceptions. That's all we're going to really say about the Pro Bowl. The other skills competitions, there was the fastest man, which was a joke. I'm not sure if Tyreek Hill had a bad start or just didn't care. Um, but Micah Parsons was the one who won because he gave forth the effort. Uh, thread the needle. Looks like it was a hot mess. Um, the cost, the Patriots, five darts through the three-point. The Viking, Kirk Cousins ended up winning, I guess. Best catch. Looked like a joke. They were jumping off trampolines, jumping off cars. I guess Trayvon Diggs won. They're saying Jefferson might have got robbed. They had the dodgeball, which is probably my favorite event because it's the only one that's competitive. 
Um, and the AFC had a one player advantage late, but, um, the NFC ended up winning that ends a two year winning streak. That's how boring the pro bowl is. I give zero shits. Um, I think they should change it up. I would like the longest throwback, like the, the things that have actually worked. Let's bring them back. Let's stick with them. Let's not all add all this, this garbage-ness. But anyway, Super Bowl Sunday, this Sunday, the big halftime show, Dr. Dre, Eminem, Kendrick Lamar, Mary J. Blige, the whole squad. I am so excited. Super Bowl tickets, a measly nosebleed seat for $4,500, which is mind-blowing. Uh, but in the massive SoFi, LA-based celebrity-run stadium, you know that place is going to be run by celebrities, on Super Bowl Sunday. The game is at 3.30 Pacific time um, on NBC. I am really excited just to have some good food, place some bets, because I give zero shits about this game. As a Steelers fan, I'm rooting for the Rams just because the, the Bengals are the little brother in the division. They win a Super Bowl. I don't want to hear what the drama and Joe Burrow in the media every day of my life and how everyone's looking up to the Bengals. I would enjoy that they fall short. They try to get their way back, yada, yada. And the Rams on the other side is this basically, they're the Lakers. They're an NBA free agency team. They've given away all their picks. They've added flashy names, Jalen Ramsey, Von Miller, Odell Beckham Jr., so on and so forth. Damn, Eric Weddle is even playing. If we, if you haven't tuned into previous episodes and forget that Eric Weddle, who came out of retirement January 12th, and had not played since the 2019 season. Two weeks later, leads the team in tackles in the NFC Championship, and now will be the designated play caller for the Rams in the Super Bowl. And I believe he's 38 years old. Eric Weddle. He is 37 years old. He turns 38. He just turned 37. 37 years old. But what a free agency team they are. When a team does this, I don't want the NFL to become the NBA in free agency, so I would typically root against them. But because they are playing the Bengals, I am forced to root for the Rams. Um, the Rams are favored by four by Vegas. I do think the Rams win. Last week I said it's just this simple. How is the Bengals' offense going to have enough time to run consistent plays and to keep Joe Burrow on his, on his feet with the defensive front seven that the uh, Rams have. I don't think they can. I think that's the hugest thing that, all, you know, there's no overanalyzation needed. Uh, Jalen Ramsey is calling for their best receiver. Whoever you think, you know, the best receiver is, give him to me. I think he shades more aside of the field than shading a receiver. He'll probably be on chase for a certain amount of time, but on T. Higgins as well. But I think the Rams are just so much more talented. Yes, the, the Bengals are an underdog. Yes, the Bengals are a fun story, but when you look at these teams head-to-head, um, -head, they should be healthy. C.J. Uzoma is going to play, supposedly. Ernest Jones is back. They have everyone that they need. Uh, even Higby is talking about playing. So there's no big injuries. There's nothing else, but there's one team that's a lot more talented than the other. Now, if, if we were to ride a world where the Bengals did win, how would they win? Well, they would have an even offense with the run game involved, which good luck doing that on the Rams' defense. Um, but being able to score early, be aggressive and let the Rams and Stafford have all the pressure. So I think the start of the game, we're really going to know what the outcome of this game is, but I think it's all going to be ran through the Rams defense. 
And I don't understand how the Bengals' defense is going to be able to keep up with the Rams' offense either. Although, I couldn't really understand how the Bengals' defense has got, to the, got them to where they are. They've, been, they've played in big-time moments. They've come up with the big plays. They've done enough. And that's what's great about football. You play the right game. You don't give up the big plays. Even though the other team's better than you, you could win. Now, I am taking the Rams. I think they do cover the spread. I am going to be more interested in this game just because of prop bets and things that I place this weekend. But it is crazy, according to ESPN, that this is the, the last 18 Super Bowls have either contained Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Big Ben, or the Niners. And here we are with something different. You'd think I would be excited, and I'm not. But the Super Bowl is going to be fun. I think Cooper Cup goes over 100 yards. I think that the Rams win by at least double digits. But again, the beginning of this game is going to be where everything is, where all the outcomes will be known. And I think uh, Joe Burrow with this swag, you never know. Maybe they drop some crazy plays. Maybe they go to Jamar Chase deep. Jalen Ramsey's not on them. They get some early scores and they could play with the lead. That's how they win this. But do I think that happens? No. Am I betting on it? Absolutely not. But hey, have some fun. I know I have a friend hosting a cookout, getting some chicken wings, getting some food, doing the damn thing, and awesome UFC fights that we'll talk about here in a minute on Saturday as well. Transitioning to the UFC, just a small FYI for the people that are tuning in, I have gone through a podcast mentorship program to really learn how to make a sustainable podcast that pays for itself. I could fly people out. You know, do the things that I want to do without spending my money. I've been spending a lot more money than I've been receiving. And it looks like Business and Buckets is going to be the Business and Buckets Podcast Network, which hosts a business podcast and a sole MMA podcast. I'm going to be focusing in the MMA, which will allow me to narrow my time to watch more things like LFA, Bellator, One Championship, whatever it is, I could be more diverse than just the UFC. Watch more contender series, which I've been slacking. Ultimate Fighter, which I love. I never miss that. But I can get MMA specific, potentially moving out to Arizona. I have some friends that are out there, some colleagues. Uh, it's a place that I can live that doesn't have to deal with humidity. Yes, the desert heat will probably blast me away. Uh, but I have some connections. There's some gyms there and some things going on. But that is the potential future of business and buckets. So the people tuning in, now you know. Um, very early stages won't be happening in the short term. This is something that... Uh, probably will happen late this year. Um, the move anyways, let alone the actual transition and branding. But boy, oh boy, do we got some fucking fights this weekend. And I'm so excited. I'm more, more excited for the UFC than the NFL, which for me as an adult is so weird to say. But honestly, going to the fights live anyways, that's really where I enjoy my time. Watching the Sugar Show and everyone else at UFC 269 was one of the most fun events I've been to. Uh, the birthday a couple of years before that that I went and saw John Jones and everything else was so much fun. So I enjoy the time covering MMA, talking about it, being passionate about it. I want to start doing Twitches, uh, a Twitch channel where I do um, fight companions where I get to watch the fights with some friends. You guys could tune in and watch with us, give us your viewpoints, really build a community around the MMA I know there are some MMA podcasts. There are some diehard journalists, but then doing it forever. But it's not as big as the NFL, the NBA, other sports that I like to talk about. 
And there, there's such big fan bases for those. There's so many media streams to tune into. So I'm going to really hone in on my UFC and MMA. Um, you know, it's not just the UFC. There's lots of other promotions, the PFL and other things that need to have credit. Eagle FC now. And hopefully make this a, a, a really nice place for people to tune in, get my takes. I do feel like I have the knowledge um, and the just experience of watching fights to to give the guidance on bets, who to go for, what to see, you know, what cards to see. If you're not a deep MMA fan, who to watch, why to watch. Those are the things that I'll be focusing on out the gate. But fuck that. Let's talk what's happening. Some fights announced. The Span and Kutalaba fight has been postponed due to Orion Span injury. That'll be a banger. I do assume that they match them up at a later date. Hopefully that happens to see uh, Ryan Superman Span back in the octagon. Alexi Olenek booked against Alir Latifi, uh, two big big men in the heavyweight division. That's going to be a fun fight coming up. And then Max Holloway has been medically cleared to uh, resume fighting and training, and he is offered to weigh in as the backup for the April 9th event, uh, Volkanovski versus the Korean Zombie. Volkanovski was torching him online, saying, well, you weren't healthy, now you're healthy, now you want to be a backup. Like, what the hell? This just kind of seems weird. I don't blame him, but uh, Max isn't typically one to pull out due to injury. He fights very often. He's one of the most active UFC fighters, so I think that's just more jabbing. But now he gets to sit back, and if Volkanovski loses to Korean Zombie, have a shot at the title anyways with the Korean Zombie. But what we all want to see is all this bad blood and all these trilogies done. You would think with the Moreno fight, this would have been it. Now, now we still got potentially one more fight. And in the Holloway... Max Volkanovsky uh, history. We need one more fight as fight fans and for them themselves to know who is the better man. So I still assume that that happens anyways. Really good fight here. Movsar of Loev taking on Dan Ige. That's going to be, it's being finalized for June 4th. So it's not official yet, but what a banger that'll be in the summer. Um, Ultimate fighter contestant. And UFC vet Diego Lima announces his retirement from the UFC. You know, for me, this is a guy that in the Ultimate Fighter seemed like he would have such a high potential. I do feel like he underwhelmed in his career in the UFC. You know, he is a great guy. He's had great fights. I'm not trying to take anything away from him. But I think he's realizing that his best days are behind him. It is time to hang up the boxing gloves, so to speak, the gloves, and call it a career. But I did see so much more potential in him that I never saw reached within the UFC. Uh, Israel Adesanya signs a new multi-fight contract, which will set the precedent for other UFC fighters. Supposedly, it's a big contract, one of the biggest ones the UFC has ever given. So just shows that if you consistently fight, do what you're told, you have the opportunity to make that money. At least it's a potential positive step in the right direction. And I see other fighters following that path Younger fighters who are due for contracts soon, such as Sean O'Malley in the bantamweight division, right? Uh, if heavyweight gets figured out, maybe a Cyril gone, someone of that nature. These types of people can get those contracts if you follow and play the game the right way. Which everyone wants to knock the UFC, I do as well. But just like corporate America, you got to pick and choose your battles, right? Um, working in corporate America, it's definitely, uh, you got to find the ins and outs, when to move, when to shake. You shake at the wrong time, you can get fired or uh, get limit limited or just a, a a scarlet letter on you, so to speak, that'll hold you back. 
And then I didn't preview this fight, but a fight that I've been watching or waiting for for a long time, Keith Thurman's return to the arena. Uh, he tore up Mario Barrios after a two-and-a-half-year layoff in his new in a new weight class at 147 pounds. This was after his last loss was to Manny Pacquiao, but he's looking shredded. He looked great in this fight. I'm excited to see him back um, in, in the arena, being able to do what he loves. He looked great. He's one of my favorite boxers to watch. Uh, so a great fight that was. I can't wait to see what he does next. But last weekend, we did have a fight night card. We did not break down the Julian Arosa fight, but goddamn, was that a fight? Probably the fight of the night. Uh, he fought against Steven Peterson, who was getting his ass kicked after the first round and almost came back after being toasted. Um, first round, Arosa was all over him. How Peterson lived, you're like, what? How in the hell? And then Peterson just had these big, powerful shots, more powerful than Arosa had been landing, and they just went back and forth for three rounds. It was a blast uh, to watch, and very big props to Julian Arosa for getting that win. Nice wins by Philip Rowe. UFC debut by Chidi Nujuanku, who ended up with like a 17-second knockout. And a good showing by Shavkat Rakonimov, who now is ranked number 15. He is undefeated, moves up into the rankings. And a big reason we didn't break down his fight is I just felt like he was going to smoke that guy anyways. I went 3-3 three and three in my picks for this event, so not as great. Looking to rebound this weekend in 269 with some dogs. I've been talking about my dogs and these big cards. It hasn't been paying off for me, but you got to stick with your gut feeling. I do the analysis. I look at the, the data, so to speak, and that's the way I feel. So I'm fucking sticking with it. Uh, but in the prelims last weekend, we had Hakeem Mean Dawudo with a unanimous decision over Michael Trezano. And this was a great fight, as I had expected. I, you know, I thought this might be fight of the night. Uh, Dawudo was just clearly more precise. He was the quicker and more efficient fighter. This was just a big step up in competition for Trezano, even though he is an ultimate fighter winner. Hakeem now starts a new winning streak after losing to Evloev. Trezano has now lost two of three and is three and two in the UFC. Statistically in the fight, Hakeem had landed 189 total strikes and 141 significant compared to Mike's, 90, Mike's 94 total and 70 significant with a takedown. What's next for these guys? For Dewudu, I would love to see him take on Andre Feely or Dan Ige. Dan Ige is now booked, so Feely is a great opponent. And for Mike, I could see him taking on Darren Elkins or Sean Woodson, who's on a roll. That would be a fun fight. And then in the main card, we have the true ultimate fighter finale. Brian Battle with the unanimous decision over Treshawn Gore. Can you believe it? Brian Battle keeps defying the odds, keeps winning as the underdog. And as we had talked about before, the fight that Brian needed to stick to, the fight plan, was using his length to his advantage, and that is exactly what he did. He clearly had a game plan to be active early and keep Gore at a distance, and it worked. Gore couldn't get in. He couldn't land the big shots. He couldn't look for the takedowns. And I'm not more. I'm not sure if I'm more stoked about Brian's performance or underwhelmed from what Gord uh, showed. I do believe I'm leaning towards just being more stoked for Brian because he keeps defying the odds. He's a great fighter story. Um, his nickname's fucking Pooh Bear. I mean, the guy's a riot, and what an awesome win for him. I think this is a huge boost for him. He has the credit that he needs to get. 
I think he is going to become a player in the middleweight division. When you're tall and lanky like that in that division, in those divisions, you could use that to your advantage. He's really done that well. He's got the good coaching to give him the good game plan, and I'm impressed. And I think that he's going to continually uh, develop and use those things to his advantage at middleweight and make some moves. Because Gore is no easy opponent either. You know, this is Gore's first loss and battles now on an eight-fight winning streak against good competition, especially that Ultimate Fighter season. I feel like there was good competition. And he's shown that he is the true Ultimate Fighter champion. Now, up next, for battle, I could see Jamie Pickett or Adolfo Vieira. And for Gore, how about Andre Petrosky or Dustin Stoltzfus? I think those would be good fights. Another Ultimate Fighter, uh, Petrosky versus Gore, who didn't get a fight in the house when they were there. And then we had Brandon Allen with the second round submission over Sam Alvey. And this was a pretty close fight. Everyone just wants to write Alvey off because he's on this big losing streak. Why is he in the UFC? Yada, yada. But he landed some big shots early. And Allen was able to show his durability. You know, he is very young. But Allen was able to get into the clinches, tire the vet Alvey out. Allen knew this was a winnable fight. I think he took it on that Tuesday, so very short notice. He wanted to get back in the win column, get that momentum back, get that bad taste out of his mouth. And this wasn't even in his regular weight class. I do not expect him to continue to fight in this weight class. No, Alvi, credit to him. He is a very experienced fighter, and he showed that Allen has room to improve. He was landing some big shots. He did find some holes, uh, but Allen was definitely the more talented fighter here. Statistically, Allen landed 36 total and significant strikes with a knockdown and a submission compared to Alvi's 24 total and significant. Now, Alvi has lost seven in a row and with a no contest. So seven in a row and a no contest. And he hasn't won since won a fight since June of 2018. So I assume he'd be cut from the UFC, but who knows what's going on at this point. Alvi did say on social media that he isn't done from fighting, but is taking time to uh, reassess, change up his game, because obviously what he's got going on hasn't been working. Now, Allen starts a new winning streak although it's not in his division, but allows him to gain that momentum and experience. I'm sure he'll be fighting again by summertime. What is next for these guys? Well, Alvi, I'm assuming, won't fight in the UFC again at almost 36 years old. And for Allen, I'd like to see him take on Christoph Jotko or Ian Heinisch. Either would be a banger, a ton of fun for the young fighter. He's been fun to watch since he's been in the UFC, so I'm excited. And then this fucking fight, man. I was so impressed at just the talent of these young fighters. Nick's Maximov with a split decision over Punahili Soriano. And boy, oh boy, did these men show off their skills during this fight. Maximov was relentless. He was just straight wrestling in this game or in this fight. And a lot of people want to knock a guy when they do that. But Punahili, as much power as he has, he's been knocking people out left and right. Right, that's what Maximo said in the MMA hour after, like, what do you want me to do? Like, you know, stand up with this guy the whole time? Are you kidding me? So he just kept going takedown after takedown with literally no separation. He looked like a Dagestani in there. And Puna defended really well, right? He does have a wrestling background. When Nick would go for some shots that were up against the cage that would take a while, it wasn't just a clean takedown. Puna landed some big, big body shots, man. And uh 
they didn't look like they they were much fun, especially later in the round uh, or in the fight in the third round when Puna knew he was losing. He was giving him some just crazy body shots, looking to finish it at the body. For me, though, I was impressed by Puna's ability, even though he lost. His flexibility for a big guy, his takedown defense was impressive, and he obviously was winning on, on their feet. For Maximov, though, you got to give the guy credit. He, he trains with the Diaz brothers. You know, he had uh, one of the Diaz bros cage side, which is very, very rare in the UFC. And uh, he was able to take the body shots. He was able to, you know, basically stay conscious when Puna landed that big knee that sliced his eye open. Um, I wasn't really surprised by the final decision with the split decision. Honestly, if Puna could have avoided the wrestling of Maximum maybe during one of those rounds, I do think he could have won the fight. That's how, you know, this is closer than people want to say it was. Is Maximum got the takedowns, but he didn't do a lot. He was spending a lot of the time trying to get those takedowns. Um, and then at the end of the fight, it seemed like Puna suffered a knee injury or a leg injury. So hopefully he's not going to be out or it wasn't anything too serious. I haven't seen anything on that yet. I looked earlier this week and it wasn't up. So let's Google real quick. Puna Healy, Soriano, injury. Still don't see anything. Oh, no. It just says suffers loss. But um, hopefully he's okay. I hate seeing people get hurt. And then um, Maximov, obviously, he's only 24 years old. He's very young. Puna's 29. Uh, neither are even in their fighting prime. But I think both of these fighters, I already enjoy watching them, obviously. But I think they're going to do great things in this middleweight division and look be better than everyone else that we saw in this in this weight class. Um, obviously, besides the, the main event, probably. But uh, statistically, Puna landed 74 total and 45 significant strikes compared to Nick's 60 total and 29 significant with 11 takedowns. And he also had a submission attempt and a reversal. Nick now stays undefeated. He's 3-0 in the UFC. Puna is on a two-fight losing streak. He's obviously going to need a quick win, get back in there. Uh, what's next for these guys? Well, for Puna, I think Phil Haas would be an amazing fucking fight. Um, maybe Roman Dolidzi. And for Nick, he could take on Rodolfo Vieira or Gerald Mearshart. Either way, I can't wait for both of these young men to step foot in the octagon again. And then the main event, crazy man Sean Strickland with the split decision over Jack Hermanson. There was a lot of scrutiny in this fight, really over the way that this ended in a split de decision, and for good reason. This was definitely a unanimous decision. Um, I don't know. Fights like this, when you see these kind types of judging, you know, thank God it wasn't a crucial way that it gave Jack the win when he didn't deserve it. But when they give the judges name, what their scorecards are, they should have to like, like math class back in the day. Show me your work. Show me how you got that. They have to have some sort of credibility or accountability to what they're doing when it's so completely off pace or else we're going to continue to have these bad judgings that could ruin people's careers, let alone their money situation. These guys don't make enough for to have some random judge fuck them over like that. Um, so that kind of clouded the whole fight, although the fight wasn't that interesting, just based off the judging and you hate to see that. But for all the shit talking and acting like a tough guy that Strickland does, he didn't showcase that at all in this fight. 
He used his defense majority of the fight, which is one of the better defenders potentially in the UFC, especially this weight class. Um, you know, people's accuracy percentages on what they've landed to Strickland are like at a record pace, very, very low. So obviously he's got good defense. He was able to stick with that. And all he did was jab Jack to death. He literally hit him with this straight left jab, which is a good jab. It pieced up um, Jack. It kept him at a distance. It didn't let Jack land combos. All Jack could do is land some leg kicks. He tried to wrestle over and over, kept getting shut down. The, old, the last person to take down Sean Strickland was Kamara Usman. So if you want to be able to take him down, you have to be high level. So sure, Sean did some good things, but I just expected if you're up three rounds and it's round four, some aggressiveness, all that shit talking that you're doing, I'd kill someone in the cage, yada, yada. We did not see any of that. So I just kept waiting for that moment. And at the, like, finally the last 10 seconds, Sean's like, stay in the middle, you fucking pussy. And it's like, dude, like, what in the hell? This is just a, a crazy fight all in all. Jack couldn't touch Sean, though. That's really all it was. He was getting gassed out from big looping punches, trying to get those combos in when he's eating a jab on his way in. And uh, Sean is just sidestepping away from him. He couldn't take down Sean, which... I thought was going to be the big difference in this fight and why I picked Jack. I thought he would get the takedown. I thought he would tire Sean out and be able to win that way. But if you can't take him down, he didn't have a chance. He only, like I said, was able to land some leg kicks. He had some good calf kicks early on, but wasn't able to land enough of them to keep Sean off his uh, off his game. And then Sean with the, the jab landing like that, like throw a couple follow-up on that. If I'm going to land those jabs like that, why can't I throw a, you know... A three, four, four punch combo. That didn't really make sense to me either, but I don't think there was a lot of common sense happening in this fight. Where we look at the fighters now, Sean is on a six fight winning streak. There is a rumor that he could potentially get the title shot. I wouldn't expect that after this performance. As he moves up one spot, takes Jack's spot at number six, I would expect that Brunson or the Killer Gorilla after their fight this week have that opportunity. Jack now starts another losing streak after the win against Edmund Shabazian, and he moves down and takes Sean's previous spot at number seven. Now, statistically, Jack landed 137 total strikes and significant strikes, but on 353 attempts. So when we talk about that per that percentage, like Sean's the the percentage landed against Sean is terrible. He attempted 353, only landed 137. He missed 220 shots, basically. That'll gas you out. Now, Sean landed 161 total and 153 significant. So what's next for these guys? I could see Sean taking on Marvin Vittori if he's in limbo for a while, or maybe Darren Till. And for Jack, I could see Brad Tavares, which would be fun, or Darren Till as well. But there's lots of action happening in the middleweight. These dominoes are going to start to fall this weekend. Speaking of this weekend, we got UFC 2 motherfucking 71, and I can't wait. The early prelims start at 3 p.m. Pacific on Fight Pass. If you want to watch the prelims, they start at 5 on ESPN. And then the main card, obviously, ESPN Plus pay-per-view at 7 p.m. The reason I bring this up is the card is so deep, you might want to tune in early. Um, some fights that we aren't breaking down. City Kickboxing and Izzy's close friend partner, Blood Diamond, is making his debut. 
Uh, he's the first fight in the early prelim, as long as the card stays how it's supposed to be. And um, he's taking on Jeremiah Wells, definitely a guy that has kind of that it factor, that unorthodox style of fighting, that style of fighting that you just can't scheme for practice, scheme how to do. It's just that natural fighting ability. So definitely going to be tuning in for the early prelims to check him out. But we're going to start in the early prelims with Alexander the Great Hernandez, the 29-year-old fighter with a 13-4 and record, taking on Renato Moicano, 32-year-old with a 15-4-1 and record. This fight alone could be damn near a co-main of a fight night card. That's, you know, and this is an early fucking prelim card. Um, Moicano has a 15-4-1 record. I can't believe this is in the early prelims. What a fun fight night this is going to fight weekend this is going to be. When we look at the fighters, Alexander is a brown belt in BJJ. He came from the LFA and started his UFC career with the bang. He knocked out Benil Dariush in the first round. He's on a one-fight winning streak and was 1-1 one one last year in 2021. And six of his 13 wins are via knockout. Now, Moicano has a background in BJJ and Muay Thai. He is a black belt in both. He's on a one-fight winning streak and is 2-1 and one in his last three fights. And eight of his 15 wins are via submission. Now, Moicano is definitely the more experienced fighter. And I believe this is going to be a very close fight. I went back and forth on this of who I thought it was going to win. But I think Moicano is in more of a win-now mode and needs to get that momentum back up and climb back in the rankings. So I'm taking Renato Moicano. I'm putting on some sort of parlay. I'm marking that ish down. And we getting bread this weekend, boys and girls. Moving into the prelims. We have William Nightmare Knight, 33-year-old fighter with a 10-2 record, taking on... Maxime Maximus Grishin, the 37-year-old with a 31-9-2 record. Now, Knight is on a two-fight winning streak. He's won uh, 9 of 11 via knockout. He finished 2021 with a 2-1 record and is 4-1 in the UFC. He is also a Dana White Contender Series alum. Uh, Grishin came from the PFL and is 1-2 in the UFC. He does have a 5-inch reach advantage, but I believe Maxime will use his reach to his advantage, but William's going to find a way in, and when he does, he he is vicious. That's why he has uh, 9 of his 11 wins via knockout. Um, I think the Nightmare Knight is going to land one of those big shots. I'm taking the underdog. I'm putting him on my parlay. We making that bread. Moving on. Alex Perez, the 29-year-old fighter with a 24-6 record and the number four next to his name, taking on Matt Danger Snell, the 32-year-old fighter with a 15-5 record and the number nine next to his name. Now, I broke down this fight when it was supposed to happen at UFC 269, which I saw live, but here we go again. Uh, this is a fight I've been looking forward to for a while, and it's an underrated fight in my opinion. Probably because it's in the flyweight division and no one really watches that or cares. Uh, Alex Perez has a background in wrestling, BJJ, and boxing. He's a Dana White Contender Series alum. He has a four and a half inch reach advantage. He's on a one fight losing streak, but that was to Divas and Figueredo, who's the champ again. He's a Dana White Contender Series alum. 
and he's seven and two in the UFC. Now Schnell, he's a black belt in karate and a purple belt in BJJ. He's an Ultimate Fighter alum. He's on a one fight losing streak and is one and two in his last three, but against very good competition and the top of the division. Eight of his fifteen wins are via submission. But again, this is a big time fight in the uh, flyweight division. Schnell is in his prime. It's a must-win fight, in my opinion, if he wants a shot at the title in the future. So I'm taking the dog. I'm taking Matt Schnell. I'm putting him on my parlay. I'm getting that bread, and I'm betting that fucking fight straight up. That's how how much I'm, I'm ready for that one. I put a $100 bet on that in Vegas and had to mail it to the casino to get my money back because it never happened, and they wouldn't refund me at the time. Pulling it up right now. How bad are these odds? Told you I got these feelings. Do they always work out? No, but I'm confident, baby. So William Knight's plus 150. I'm taking him as a dog. Moicano's the favorite, actually. I don't know why I thought he was a dog. And Matt Schnell's plus 290 as the dog. You guys trying to make some money? You're hearing it right here. Give me a shout out if you do. Spread the wealth. And then we have Roxanne, the happy warrior, Mata Ferry. 39 years old with the 25 and 20 record and the number 12 next to her name. She's taking on Casey King O'Neill, 24 years old with an 8 and 0 record and the number 15 next to her name. Now Roxanne, she has announced that this will be her, her last fight of her career. She trains at a syndicate MMA. She has a black belt in BJJ and a brown belt in judo. She's fought in Invicta, Strike Force, she's an Ultimate Fighter alum. She's a true OG. She has told everyone that this is her last fight of her career. She's on a two-fight losing streak. Meanwhile, Casey trains out of Extreme Couture. She's a brown belt in BJJ. She has a background in kickboxing. And she is 3-0 in the UFC, all of them being in 2021. A very good year for the King. Casey is a big Vegas favorite. You can't count out Roxanne, especially with her experience. But I'm counting her out in this one. I'm taking Casey King. She's on a roll. She's an up-and-comer. Put that shit on your parlay. Let's get this bread. And then we got the big dogs. We got Andre the Pitbull Orlovsky at 43 years old with a 32-20 and 20 record. Taking on Jared Vandera, the 29-year-old fighter with a 12-6 and 6 record. Now Orlovsky trains out of American Top Team. He is an international master of sport and uh, sambo. He's one of the all-time greats, in my opinion. He's a true, o, true vet, a true OG. He's fought in the World Series of Fighting, 1FC, Strike Force, Elite XC, Affliction, and one, you name it. And at the end of his career, he finds himself on a two-fight winning streak, and he's won four of the last five. He was 2-1 and one last year, and 17 of his 32 wins are via knockout. Meanwhile, Jared trains out of Dan Henderson's Athletic Fitness Center. He's a black belt in BJJ. He's a Dana White Contender Series alum. He's on a one-fight losing streak. He's 1-2 and two in his last three fights. He comes from uh, the LFA. He does have a 3-inch reach advantage. And 7 of his 12 wins are via knockout. I expect these boys are going to be banging. I do think the vet, the pit bull, keeps winning, keeps his momentum going, as a more experienced fighter who also seems revitalized this far in his career. 
I've been very impressed with the way he's fought in his 40s. Some Glover Teixeira-esque type fighting. So I'm taking the pit bull. I'm putting him on my parlay. I'm marking that ish down. And we get in that bread. Moving to the main card. We're not even at the main card yet. We got Bobby King Green, 35 years old, with a 27-12-1 record, taking on Nazrat Haparist, 26 years old, with a 13-4 record. What a fun fight to start the main card. Bobby, he's a blue belt in BJJ. He's a strike force alum. He's on a one-fight winning streak and is 1-2 in his last three fights. But, but that's against very promising guys like Rafael Faziev and Tiago Moises. And 10 of his 28 wins are via knockout. Now, Nazrat is on a one-fight losing streak as well, but that was against Dan Hooker. Nine of his 13 wins are via knockout. Now, Nazrat is so young, he's not even in his prime yet. I do think Bobby Green has looked good of late. He's going to keep it going in this one. I went back and forth on this one too. So if you can avoid it from the parlay, you should. But hey, we get in that bread. Bobby King Green. And then we have Kyler the Matrix Phillips, 26 years old, with a 9-2 record, taking on Marcelo the Pitbull Rojo, 33 years old with a 16-8 record. Now, Kyler trains out of the MMA lab. He was previously a ranked fighter. He is a Dana White Contender Series alum. He came from the LFA after not getting a contract in the Contender Series. He's coming off a loss, but is 3-1 in the UFC. And five of his nine wins are via knockout. Now, Rojo is on a one-fight losing streak. And that was his UFC debut. Eight of his 16 wins are via knockout. Four of his seven losses are via submission. Needs to step it up there. Uh, but Kyler is such a unique fighter. Like I said, he's got that ick factory. He's got these spinning combinations and things that just no one can do. And after taking a loss, I expect the best version of the Matrix. I'm taking Kyler. I'm putting him in my parlay. We marking that down. And we getting that bread. And then this motherfucking fight. This is an amazing fight. I do think the winner of this has an opportunity to get a title fight. And these men are in their late 30s. We have Jared the Killer Gorilla Cannoneer, 37 years old, with a 14 and 5 record, and the number three next to his name, taking on Derek the One Brunson, 38 years old, with a 23 and 7 record, and the number four next to his name. Now, what a fight we have in store! A battle of the vets. Again, I think the winner gets the title shot. Most likely, anyways, it's not going to be guaranteed. Obviously, performance and how this plays out will, you know, take a hand there and in injuries. But Jared is an orthodox fighter who trains out of the MMA lab. He's a purple belt in BJJ. He's on a one fight winning streak, and his losses the past four years have been against straight killers. Nine of his 14 wins are via knockout. And then Brunson. We got to talk about Brunson. Brunson is blonde Brunson. He's super sand Brunson right now. He has a background in wrestling, BJJ, and boxing. He's a southpaw fighter. He trains out of Sanford MMA, which is straight killers. He has a D2 background in wrestling at North Carolina, a black belt in BJJ. He also fought in strike force. He's on a five-fight winning streak. 12 of his 23 wins are via knockout. 
and five of the seven losses are via knockout as well. The narrative of this fight is similar to a lot of the blonde Brunson's last fights on this five-fight winning streak. I think I've bet against him majority of the time, and blonde Brunson shut me up. If he could take down Jared and keep him down, he's in business. I do think Jared defends the takedown well and is too well-rounded for even blonde Brunson. This is such a 50-50 fight, though. I have no idea what to expect. I do like the striking of Cannoneer better, but both fighters look to be the best versions of themselves in their late 30s, which is awesome to see. No easy feat, and you could tell the other fighters in the division are probably on notice. Again, I do expect the winner of this fight to get the title. I'm putting my money on Jared, the killer gorilla Cannoneer, and I'm not putting it in a parlay if I could avoid doing so. Now in the co-main event, the big, big boys. We got Derek the Black Beast Lewis, 37 years old with a 25-8 and record and the number three next to his name, taking on Ty Bam Bam Tuavasa, 28 years old with a 13-3 and record. And literally, uh, Ariel Hawani should take the credit for this. He had Derek, Br- or, uh, Derek Lewis on talking about never wanting to fight in Houston, how much pressure it was. He had Ty Tuavasa on. Ty said it would be great to fight Derek Brunson. Literally that next day, the fight was official. Ariel Hawani's like, damn, I should be getting some credit for that or something. Uh, but it's like they talked about fighting. Their coach, their manager, someone was like, hey, let's make this an, an opportunity. You would think this might be a reach for, for Bam Bam uh, to fight Derek, up, but he's on a, a big winning streak. Why not? But this is going to be one that should not go the full distance. Sometimes when the two brawlers match up, you, you think there's no way, and it does. It ends up like Derek Lewis and Francis Ngannou, but I do not see that happening here. Lewis wants the redemption in Houston, and he's going to get it. Lewis is a blue belt in BJJ. He's fought in Bellator. He's on a one-fight winning streak. He does have a four-inch re- uh, reach advantage on Bam Bam, and he is 5-1 and one in his last six. 21 of his 26 wins are via knockout. And he has the record for most knockouts in UFC history. He's going to try to add to the list. Meanwhile, Ty has a kickboxing background. He trains out of the American Kickboxing Academy. He's on a four-fight winning streak. He has been the underdog and has upset bigger guys, plus has back-to-back performance of the night. 12 of his 13 wins are via knockout, but both fighters roll the same way. The only way I see Ty winning is if he attacks early and comes straight at Lewis like he did against Augusto Sakai. He's got to land a big shot early, put Derek Lewis back in his seat. But I think Derek Lewis is going to come at him with some mean combinations. It's going to be KO or Shuey. Either way, this is going to be one hell of a fight, and I can't wait. I'm taking Lewis. I'm putting him on my parlay. I'm marking that ish down, and we get in that bread. And then the main event. This is a main event I have been waiting for for a lot of time. A long, long time. If you tune into Business and Buckets religiously, I always talk about the thought of this. I will probably pick Robert. I wanted to analyze it further, make sure that my thoughts were that same way. You know, long story short, I am taking Robert Whitaker, probably one of the few. But we got Israel, the last style bender. Adesanya, the 32-year-old fighter with a 21-1 record, 
taking on Robert the Reaper, a.k.a. Bobby Knuckles Whitaker, 31 years old, with a 24-5 and record and the number one next to his name. Obviously, Izzy's the champ. A rematch of champions in their prime. As fight fans, how could you not be excited about that? This is such a dope fight, and I don't know if it's getting the credit it deserves. I've been anticipating this fight for so long. Robert tried to make the first fight a brawl, and that was the biggest mistake he could make. He got let Izzy get in his head. Izzy's talented a lot of places outside the octagon. He's talented at getting in your head, talking shit, making a scene. He's a showman. That's really what it is. He doesn't fight. He's a performer. And it got to Rob in the first fight. Rob's a family man. He's not as extroverted. He does his thing. He let it get to him. Robert was the champion at the time. Izzy beats him. Robert comes on a terror, looks better than ever. And now here we go in the rematch. Um, Let's see. I do think this time Robert sticks to his strengths over Izzy. He wrestles more. He makes it dirtier. He puts it up against the cage. He tries to grind Izzy out like he said. Jan Blakovich gave you the game plan on how to beat him. He's not as big as Jan. It's easier said than done. But I do think this plays a big role in this fight. Izzy, he's a kickbox- he has a kickboxing and boxing background. He trains at a city kickboxing. He's a purple belt in BJJ. He's on a one-fight winning streak after losing to Jan and trying to be the champ champ. Uh, before that, he was undefeated. 15 of his 21 wins are via knockout. Meanwhile, Bobby Knuckles has a background and black belts in BJJ, Hapkido, and Goju Ryu Karate. He's on a three-fight winning streak since he last lost to Izzy, and nine of his 23 wins are via knockout. I do think Robert was complacent and bored as the champion, and then Izzy came around and humbled his ass. I do believe things are different now, and Robert realized that his ego and emotions got to him, especially in the first round. I don't know exactly what it's like, but I do. Um, I don't know exactly what it is, but I do like Whitaker's style right now against the champ. I think he'll regain the title back. I like the ability of him to wrestle, mix it up. The things that if you were to beat Izzy, if I could drop a game plan on how to beat Izzy, right? He's got it. Now, Izzy does well as the champion, although he does talk a lot of shit. He said this is one of his worst years as a champion, right? There's room to improve, where I think Robert kind of lacked that when he was champion. But I think Robert has such a big chip on his shoulder. He's not talking about how big of a deal this is. He's acting like it's any other fight. And I think he's got the mentality as a, as a father to get the job done here. I'm taking Robert. I'm taking the dog. Robert is... A plus 225 dog. I might bet on that straight up as well. I'm putting him in my parlay, marking that down, and we getting that bread. What a fucking fight card this weekend. Now, next Saturday is another fight night card, but a loaded one. It's a 4 p.m. Pacific start, headlined by Rafael Dos Anjos and Rafael Faziv. What a banger that's going to be. Keep the fight. If you look at the fight cards the next like five, six weeks, it is straight stacked. There's fight card after fight card, amazing fight after amazing fight. We are in for some treats as fight fans. But switching it up, we're done with the fights. Let's talk some NBA action. 
The trade deadline is manana. When this comes out, the deadline will probably be passed. But we've had some trades. I talked last week. I didn't think there'd be any mind-blowing trades. There's been some decent ones. And I think that pretty much everyone's blown their load. And I don't expect to see any crazy trades. But the Clippers did trade Eric Bledsoe, Justice Winslow, Keon Johnson, and a future second-round pick to the Blazers for Norman Powell and Robert Covington. C.J. McCollin, Larry Nance Jr. went to the Pelicans for a first-round pick in 2022. Uh, Josh Hart, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, and Thomas Sadoransky went to Portland. The Pacers traded uh, Sabonis, Jeremy Lamb, and Justin Holiday to the Kings for Tyrese Halliburton, Buddy Hield, and Tristan Thompson. And then today there was a three-team trade where the Jazz acquired Nikhil Alexander-Walker from Portland, Juancho Hernan Gomez from the Spurs. They received Joe Ingles, which is basically an expiring contract since he tore his ACL. Elijah Hughes and a second rounder. And the Spurs got Tamas Sodoransky and a second round pick. So we break this down. The Clippers unloaded some guys. They got some uh, Norman Powell, which is a, a good young player, and Robert Covington who could play both ways. Um, CJ McCollum and Larry Nance to the Pelicans. I feel terrible that C.J. McCollum finally got split up from his best friend and, and Damian Lillard and went to a worse team with the Pelicans. Um, obviously, with the, the doubt of Zion, who knows what the future of the Pelicans is. I'm pretty close to Portland. I go to Blazer games. I go to all the Jazz games and try to go see other NBA playmakers. I know how much Portland loves that the team that they've had. They had made some surprising playoff moves. Damian Lillard with some buzzer beaters to upset some teams. But this was never a championship team. I try to tell Blazer fans, you're blind to think if you have the talent to win a championship. It's not going to happen. And it, it had to be done. It's kind of painful that it's finally been done. But I feel for CJ that he's had to go to the Pelicans. Hopefully he could get traded out of there. Or Zion relives his glory days. I don't know. Now the Pacers. I understand you want to get rid of Sabonis. I know Miles Turner is upset. He wants to be the guy. Whatever. But can't you get something back in return? Now, Tyrese Halliburton's a good young player. He has a lot of control. He's cheap. But Buddy Hield and Tristan Thompson, that's the best package you could have got. You can't set your help, yourself up with better, um, younger players, more picks, whatever. So I, I didn't really like any of these trades, to be honest. I actually think my Utah Jazz came out the best by having to find more depth because Joe Ingles is out. They got a young Nikhil Alexander-Walker who shows he could be groomed. He has, you know, he's young. He's taken a step back this year. He's still on a rookie contract. Worst case scenario, they don't sign him back. But he's going to make uh, a big difference in the way the Jazz play for the rest of the season because he will be in the rotation. They do have Hernan Gomez if they, something needs to happen. I mean, maybe they're not done. Who knows? But none of these were like, holy shit. The Heat also acquired a 2026 it's crazy in the NBA. A 2026 pick. Like, we're trading 2026 picks right now? A second round pick from the Thunder for KZ Akpala. So, yeah, just, I don't know. None of these to me were, woo, like, holy shit, this is game changing. Someone's going all in. Um, Also, the Pacers traded Karis Levert to the Cavs. Again, an expiring contract for Ricky Rubio. A first and two seconds. So there's just not a lot of power making moves here. There will be some pretty good like all-star level players in some new places. 
Um, but just like the CJ thing, it's like, cool, you're going from Portland uh, for Sabonis, DeMontis Sabonis. You're going from Indy to SAC, which is just an ultimate purgatory team right now. So I feel bad that the good players didn't go to, you know, contending like teams. But I'm happy for the Jazz. They get a new guy in the rotation. And much like the Jazz, I want to be surprised if the Jazz signed Joe Ingles after the year, right? It's an expiring contract. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Cavs signed Ricky Rubio, right? Both guys coming off ACLs, uh, both ex-Jazz players, funny enough. But other than that, Portland's on a rebuild. They're just trying to get as much money as they can. That's why they were a part of these trades. Uh, but yeah, I, I was hoping at least one contender would make a big move. Maybe we'll see that tomorrow. Who knows? Or maybe one's happened since we've been live. Let's see. Nope. Nothing's happened. Other than that, the NBA salary cap is increasing. It's going up by quite a bit of millions, actually. Salary cap increase. It's uh, going from 121 to 147. So more money for the players. More money for teams. Bradley Bill is done for the season after undergoing season-ending wrist surgery. Brutal for Bradley Bill. I feel like his career has been all-star fun to watch. You know, not very competitive team. Um, does he sign? Does he not? Does he get traded? Does he not? Finally had a decent team this year. Gets hurt. And here we are. So tough news for Mr. Bradley Bill. How about this? Luka Doncic, already the 10th all-time in triple doubles at 22 years old. For a long time, even when I grew up, triple doubles is like this. So, oh my God, you got a triple double? They're becoming more and more common. It's because the guys are learning how to play multiple positions. Big guys can shoot. right? Guys like Luka can do everything. He's big enough as a point guard. He's got good enough handles to be a point guard, but he can play other positions. So the game is evolving. But the fact that he's done that at 22 years old, this kid is amazing. Um, I can't wait to see what his future holds. The All-Star Reserves team was announced. Let's pull that up. You got Devin Booker, Jimmy Butler, Luka Doncic. We'd all expect those guys. Darius Garland, Rudy Gobert, Draymond Green. That's, a, in my opinion, a popularity contest. He hasn't played or played at a high level in a long time. James Harden, Zach Levine, Chris Middleton, Donovan Mitchell, Chris Paul, Jason Tatum, Carl Anthony Towns, and Fred Van Fleet made the cut. The only one I'm super opposed against was Draymond Green, but that is the reserves who'll be playing in the all-star teams. The three-point contestants have been announced. Desmond Bain, Luke Kennard, Zach Levine, CJ McCollum, Patty Mills, Cat, Fred Van Fleet, and Trey Young. I think it's going to be one of the guards, Patty Mills, CJ McCollum, or Trey Young. I hope CJ McCollum earns it. He's going to need some sort of positive momentum uh, now that he is in NOLA. Because of the 75th year anniversary, the NBA ranks the top 15 coaches all time. Uh, Red Auerbach, Larry Brown, Chuck Daly, Red Holzman, Phil Jackson, Casey Jones, Steve Kerr, Don Nelson, Greg Popovich, Jack Ramsey, Pat Riley, Doc Rivers, Jerry Sloan, Eric Spolstra, and Lenny Wilkins. I have no beef with this list. Um, 
you know, as a young fan growing into almost 30 years old, I've obviously seen Pat Riley and everything he's done. Um, really has earned his way as a coach, a general manager, anything in between. Eric Spoltra's continued that legacy. What he did with the Heat team with Dwayne Wade and he's still doing. Props to him for being a, uh, a film guy. Jerry Sloan, what he did in Utah, never had the big playmakers, always was a big-time playoff team and always a second-round team. Uh, Phil Jackson, obviously. Greg Popovich on his last days and what he's done. A really cool list. I thought they had nailed it with the top 15 coaches. Bravo to the top 15 coaches. And before we talk about what happened in the NBA this past week, we're going to dive into another East and West team. In the East, we're going to talk about the Philadelphia 76ers. And in the West, the Golden State Warriors. As it stands today, the Philadelphia 76ers are first in their division, 32-22 and 22 in the East. And they find themselves in the five spot, a game behind Cleveland in the four spot, and two games ahead of Toronto from the last spot to avoid the play-in. In their last 10 games, they are 6-4. and four. And this is all without Ben Simmons. When you look at injuries, Shake Milton's uh, hurt right now, but they don't have any long-lasting injuries. Ben Simmons is still pouting. The guy that won Rookie of the Year robbed Donovan Mitchell of that award is still doing what he's going to do. I don't expect him to be traded before the deadline. And other than that, the Sixers are playing competitive basketball. I love me some Tyrese Maxey. I honestly like this team better without Simmons. They obviously need somebody else uh, to be able to really be a contender. But Tyrese Maxey, um, he's only 21 years old, right? This is the second uh, season in the league. He's averaging 16.9 points, 3.6 rebounds, and 4.8 uh, assists, which are great stats. Obviously, he probably wasn't expecting to get this much game time. You would assume with Simmons being around that that wouldn't be the case. Uh, but when we look at, why is this not bringing? I want to look at his stats compared to last year. Okay, there we go. Um, he averaged eight points a game last year. You could tell there was something there. But now he gets some opportunity. He, he's getting 16.9. He's just under 40% from three-point. And he's getting more and more confident as the days go by. Obviously, they have Seth Curry. Not Steph Curry. Little brother Seth, uh, Seth Curry. He's averaging 15 points a game. Um, obviously, he's known for being a sharp shooter, just like his brother. But his whole career, he hasn't averaged more than 12 points a game. So he's having the best season of his career. Three-point shooting's down a little bit. He's shooting 40%. He's you know forced to do more when he is typically a 45% shooter. So hopefully he could get those numbers up, but he's still having a good season. They have Matisse Thibel, who is more of a defensive player. Um, he, he went here to UW. I believe you... Let's see. I believe he's from here too, right? No, he's Australian, but let's see. Let's see if I could quickly find this early life, Scottsdale. And he settled in Sammamish, Washington. Uh, so another 206 local boy, uh, mostly a, a defender. Tobias Harris, who was part of their big, you know, a big free agent acquisition. The Jazz almost signed him. Everyone wants to blame him, but he's still averaging 19.1 points a game, uh, 7.3 rebounds. Last year, he had averaged... 
19.5 than 19.6. So he's still right around there. You'd think with Ben Simmons, he'd have more opportunity. But also, Joel Embiid, when he is playing, demands the ball a lot. Without Joel Embiid, there's too many holes in the lineup, right? Drummond did his thing for a while. But now that Joel Embiid is back, he's averaging 29.4 points per game, which is first, 10.9 rebounds, 4.3 assists, and he's third and per at 32. When we look at how that ranks compared to his last seasons, last year he averaged 28.5 points, then 23. So this is the best season for Joel Embiid. And then Andre Drummond had filled in while uh, Embiid was out. He had 6.1 points per game, 8.8 rebounds. And then the bench, they have uh, Furkan Korkmaz, who's a decent three-point shooter. Danny Green in his last days. Georges Niang from Utah, um, who is also a three-point shooter. He's averaging 9.5 points per game. This year, he's shooting 40% from three. He averaged 42.5 last year for the Jazz. Danny Green is only shooting 38.6% from three. Last year, he shot 40. And then Korkmaz is shooting 39%, or no, excuse me, 28% from three. Last year, he averaged 37. So their shooting's cold a little bit as of now. Seth Curry, Korkmaz, Niang, everybody. Joel Embiid's having a career year. Tyrese Maxey's really stepping up. Tyree, Tobias Harris is doing what you'd expect of him, even though he gets a lot of the outs. But this team is missing one piece. When we look at their season potential, I do think they could leap the Cavs in the four spot. Uh, the Bulls are right there at one and a half with injuries. You never know. So they could find themselves in the, the, the three to five slot. That's what I would expect. And still is not a team that you'd want to fuck with in the playoffs. Are they a contender? I don't think so. Now, when we look at Utah, uh, not Utah. When we look at the Warriors, Andre Iguodala is out right now, but it's short term. James Wiseman is participating in full contact three on three scrimmages as of this Tuesday, but there still is no timetable. He would be a huge help to the team if he isn't on the you know on a different team by tomorrow. Uh, Clay Thompson is not playing today just due to rest, but he's been looking good. Uh, Nemanja Bjelica um, has been out for a little while, and so has Draymond Green, who isn't hasn't been expected to return till after the all-star break but when we look at what they're doing they currently find themselves at the two spot in the west three games back from the suns four games ahead of the grizz in their last 10 they're nine and one i would expect them to stay in the second spot and really steph curry hasn't been playing at elite level that we expect or have seen him that he did early in the season he's kind of been chilling out a little bit and they're still there in the second spot um, Clay Thompson coming back from knee injury. Um, he's been out for such a long time. He's averaging 16.7 points per game though. Steph Curry is averaging 25.7, 5.4 rebounds, 6.4 assists. When we look at that compared to other seasons, last year he averaged 32 points per game. So definitely not quite to the, the standards of last year. But when we look at who stepped up, Andrew Wiggins being an all-star, uh, which is wild to think. He averaged 18.1 points per game this year, 4.3 rebounds, 2.1 assists. When you look at what he did last year, he was at 18.6, 19 the year before, 22. So right around his typical average for scoring. They have Otto Porter, who's played a huge role. He's averaging 8.5 points, 5.2 rebounds. When you look at that, it's a 0.5 uh, increase from the year before. They have Kevin Looney starting at the center spot. They could really use the defense and uh, spread out ability of Draymond Green. 
Um, obviously, they could use the young stud, James Wiseman, being involved more. Jonathan Kaminga's had some highlights this year. He's had some big games. He's averaging 7.3 points per game, but he looks to be a, a, a good player coming from the G League, a good draft pick. Jordan Poole's obviously stepped up, especially when Steph was hurt. He's averaging 16.6 points per game, uh, which is 4.6 more than last year. Let's see what he's shooting. His three-point percentage this year is 34, which he's shooting more, but damn near, he shot 35 last year, but he's obviously got way more attempts. And 44 from the field, which is better than last year, even though he's got more volume. So he's really taking a step up. They have some interesting players in their depth chart. Obviously, Iggy's there, Gary Payton the second, Moses Moody, who was a big-time SEC player. So they do have some youth. They obviously are top-heavy. Having Clay back is huge, but they're going to need some really good play from Wiseman coming back, Draymond Green coming back, Kuminga stepping up in the playoffs for them to really win it. But they're going to be right there. They're going to be a two-seed, right? They're going to be playing uh, some easier games in the, in the early parts of the playoffs. And a lot of them is going to have to be going through the chase arena. So this team is a contender. Am I going to pick them to win? Not necessarily. But that's a team that you don't want to fuck with. But looking at what happened since last week, we're going to take place starting before the weekend and Friday. The Cavaliers irked a game by the Hornets on the road, 102-101. Uh, Jarrett Allen at 29-22. and He's on my fantasy team. That's my guy. Big game for Jared Allen. Kevin Love consistently playing good ball off the bench. 25-9. and nine. He was 6 of 14 from 3. This guy is trying to get a 6-man of the year award. He's got to be in the talk, in the conversation. For the Hornets, they were led by Terry Rozier with 24 points on 21 shots. And Kelly Oubre Jr., 21-9 and nine off the bench, but on 19 shots. So they like to put it up. They're not as efficient. Cleveland was able to pound the rock and get the job done. Also on Friday, the Raptors cruising by the Hawks in Toronto with no fans. I'm sure OVO was in attendance. 125-114. The Hawks had three players in tw uh, uh, 20 points or higher. John Collins had 23-6, but on 19 shots. Uh, DeAndre Hunter had 23 on 18 shots. And Trey Young, 22-13, but on 20 shots. So not a very efficient night from the floor. 31% from three. 46% from the field. And the Raptors were led by Pascal Siakam, who had 33-9. and He was 3-of-3 three three from 3. And Fred Van Fleet, the All-Star, 26-11. and He was 5-of-10 from 3. A lot more efficient game from the Raptors. It's never easy traveling to Canada. If you guys are a NBA better, they're playing in, in Canada. The players hate that. Watch out. Let's see. The Mavericks beating the Sixers in Dallas, 107-98. to The Mavericks were led by, of course, the triple-double machine, Luka Doncic, who had 33-13-15. I think this was the day that he um, went up to the ranking in the triple-double. Uh, Reggie Bullock also had 20 points, 4 of 11 from 3. Luka's 33 points were on 28 shots, not very efficient. He was 1 of 6 from 3, but he found a way to win. The Sixers were led by Joel Embiid, 27-13. And, and the Sixers find themselves in the, losing in the losers column. Turning into Saturday, the Heat beating the Hornets on the road. The Hornets dropped back-to-back, 104-86. -back, 
The Heat were led by Jimmy Buckets, 27-6. Very efficient basketball. Bam Adebayo with an impressive 20-12 as well. But those 20 points were on 21 field goals. So that is not great for a big man. And then the Hornets were led by Terry Rozier, who had 16-6, but on 12 shots. Lamella Ball only with 12 points on 11 shots. That Heat defense suffocated the Youngbloods for Charlotte. The Lakers escaping the Knicks in overtime. Big win for the Lakers at home as they're trying to survive. 122-115. The Lakers were led by the King, LeBron James. 29-13-10, a little triple-double for him as well. And Malink Monk caught fire for 29 points. He was 4 of 8 from 3. The Knicks were led by Julius Randle at 32-16-7. And, and RJ Barrett who had 36-8-5. So big games from their, their young duo for the Knicks. But the Lakers stole the show. Moving into Sunday. The Sixers beating the Bulls in Chi-Town. Big road victory for the Sixers. 119-108. They were, of course, led by Joel Embiid, who snapped for 40. He had 40 and 10. Very efficient uh, game for the big guy. He was even 2 for 4 from 3. And the Bulls were led by DeMar DeRozan. 45, 9, and 7. An efficient game for him, but it wasn't enough. They were without Zach Levine, and it was too much to, to try to make up in the scoring department. Mm-mm-mm-mm. The Mavericks beating the Hawks in Dallas. They keep winning 103 to 94. Dallas was led by Reggie Bullock again, 22 and 90 with six of 10 from three. And Jalen Brunson with 22 points himself. Uh, Jalen Brunson having a great year for the Mavericks. Love seeing that Nova nation, baby. The Atlanta Hawks were led by John Collins at 22 and 18, but they couldn't find a way to win on the road. Cruising into Monday, the start of this week. The Raptors beating the Hornets again, but this time on the road. The Raptors taking three losses here. Uh, 116-101. The Raptors had four of their starting five and 20 points or more. Uh, and really just the bench didn't do much. They had a, uh, 12 points. Pascal Siakam had 24-11-8. OG had 20-9. Fred Van Fleet, 25-5, and five, and Gary Trent Jr., 24. And for the Hornets, they were led by Miles Bridges, who had 25-6-5, but the Raptors coming strong for the win on the road. The Suns beating the Bulls in Chicago, 127-124. They were led by Devin Booker, who took off for 38 points. He was 5-10 of 10 from 3. And the Bulls had 32 from Levine back in the lineup. He had 32-6-8. And DeMar DeRozan, another huge game, 38 points efficiently, but it still wasn't enough. Vucevic only with 13, well, 13 and 12, but on 15 shots. Need to be better there. Desunmu, only two points. Uh, Jalen Green, so they needed more scoring. They couldn't get it done. Colby White, 13 off the bench. Um, the Jazz beating the Knicks in Utah. Huge win for the Jazz. They need to get back on track. Donovan Mitchell back in the lineup snaps for 32-7-6. Uh, Bogdanovich had 20 points as well. And the Knicks were led by Julius Randle at 30-6. and six. Enjoyed the stifle tower being out. Uh, Rudy Gobert isn't playing in tonight's game, but should be back soon. And then last night, the Suns beating the 76ers on the road. Some nice wins on the road for the Suns as they stay clearly ahead of the West.
They beat the uh, Sixers 114-109. They were led by Mikel Bridges, 23 points. And the Sun, or the Sixers were led by Joel Embiid, who had 34-12. and 12. Tobias Harris over 30 as well with a 30-7 and 7 line. But the Suns win. Also yesterday... Let's see any other good games. The Bucks beating the Lakers. This was a TNT game. The Lakers getting embarrassed in prime time, 131-116. I saw a quote online. They asked LeBron, can you play at the level that Milwaukee is playing right now? And he said no. Um, obviously, they want to make moves at the trade deadline, but easier done than said. Done than said. You wanted Russell Westbrook. You got Russell Westbrook. You wanted that team. You got the team, and it's just not doing the trick. The Bucks were led by the Greek Freak, who snapped for 44-14-8, a very efficient game. He was even 2-for-2 two two from 3. Getting that 3-ball dialed in. And the Lakers were led by LeBron, who had 27-8. AD chipped in 22-9. And Russell Westbrook had 10-10 on 11 shots. See how many turnovers he had and 4 turnovers. Laker-like basketball right there. And then tonight, at 7:33, most of the games are probably going... Or done. My Jazz are right there with the Warriors. The Warriors without Clay. The Jazz without the Stifle Tower. The Cavaliers beat the Spurs. The Bulls beating the Hornets. The Hornets continuing to continuing to slide. The Bulls win 121-109 today. DeMar DeRozan, 36. This guy is on fucking fire. Uh, Zach Levine, 27-7-5. I love seeing DeRozan succeed. Uh, for the Hornets, they had LaMelo Ball with 33-9-4. He was 5-10 from 3. Um, Miles Bridges at 22, but it wasn't enough to keep up with the high-scoring Bulls tonight. Looking at the standings, the East is led by Miami. Milwaukee's right there. Chicago 3, Cleveland 4, Philly 5, Toronto 6. The team's in the play-in. Boston 7, Brooklyn 8, Charlotte 9. Atlanta 10. Cr crazy to see Charlotte just, just sliding like that. The East is so tight. We've talked about how tight it is. It's just a few games separating these teams. And then the West, a little bit more separation. Suns, Warriors, Grizz, Jazz, uh, Mavericks, Nuggets. Could be interesting if Jamal Murray comes back looking good. Uh, in the play-in bundle right now, we have T-Wolves, Clippers, Lakers, Pelicans, I don't think the Lakers are climbing out of the play-in. That's going to be interesting. I think LeBron's going to want to play with his son, and he might be might be over this shit. And then we got college basketball. The new rankings out this week. Again, nothing that really sticks off the page. They got the rankings dialed in pretty good at this point. My overrated still does stay, stay pretty similar. Arizona at four, I think, is overrated. Um, maybe a 15 or less. I have Houston overrated at number six. They're not going to play anyone, so it's going to be hard to see. Um, let's look at their schedules real quick. I know we've done this multiple weeks, but just waiting for them to drop. So Arizona, mostly winnable games. They play USC at USC. USC is not even that good. And then for Houston, Houston, yeah, it doesn't really play much competition either. So they're probably going to stay up there, but... I'll definitely probably have them leaving early in the bracket. Um, I have Providence is overrated as well. I've watched them in the Big 12. They're ranked number 11. They should be in the rankings, but not that high. 
Uh, St. Mary's, I believe, lost just recently, but they were 22 in the rankings. I thought that that was overrated, and Murray State entering at 23 is overrated as well. Um, looking at what's happened since last week, uh, Arizona did beat UCLA. This was a huge statement win. This was to see if Arizona could ball or not. They handled UCLA. Uh, UCLA did not look good whatsoever. They shot 21.4% from three, 38% from the field. Uh, Hawkes Jr. had 13 points on 12 shots. Juzang, 12 points on 15 shots. Their playmakers couldn't get it going. And Arizona was able to play quick, effective, and get the job done uh, as Arizona ends up winning. I think, let's see. Arizona did have a 17-point lead at one time. Uh, and Arizona turned the ball over 15 times to UCLA's eight, and they still lost the game. So that caught me off by surprise. There was some validation for Arizona there. Moving into Friday, lots of games, nothing noteworthy. Saturday, Auburn escaping Georgia. Walker Kessler with 10 and 9 for, for Auburn. BYU, usually a good game for Gonzaga, a tough game. They blew him out this time. Chet Holmgren with 20, 17, and 6. That's the high-level athlete they thought they were getting. Then UCLA goes and loses to Arizona State in overtime. Um, they shot a little bit better from the field in this game. I believe it was the turnovers here. Not even that. Just, yeah, not finding their shot. That's simply what it was. Arizona State, their defense not stepping up. Arizona State able to score almost 90 points. Hawkins Jr. had 27 and 11 uh, efficiently, so at least he got some coming in. Juzang had 20 and 10, but on 22 shots, they still lose. UCLA maybe wasn't who I thought they were. This was a triple overtime game, tough game. Back-to-back -back Arizona schools, you know that conference play can get you. Uh, but yeah, I thought they would easily handle those teams. Purdue beating Michigan at home. Michigan is a tough season. They're at 11 and 9, 5 and 5 in conference play. Hunter Dickinson with 28, 2 and 2. He keeps balling. And Travion Williams leading Purdue with 19 and 8. Kentucky, fifth rate Kentucky beating Alabama pretty handily. I try to tell y'all Alabama was overrated at the time. They're 4 and 6 in conference, 14 and 9 overall. They're not in the rankings anymore. Um, Kentucky was led by Washington Jr., who had 15 points. Um, Shackleford had six points. Javon Quinterly seven for the Tide. The Tide eight rolling right now. Arizona wins again against USC at home. Uh, Arizona was seven, USC 19 at the time. Isaiah Mobley with 15 and seven to lead the Trojans. And then for Arizona, they were led by Azulis Tubelis, 18 and 11. I have no idea how to say that guy's name. Kansas beating Baylor handily at home. Baylor potentially not who we thought they were either. Uh, Kansas with 10th ranked. Baylor was 11th ranked at the time. Baylor was led by Adam Flager, who had 16 points. The Jayhawks were led by Obaji with 18 points, 9 rebounds. He was 2 of 6 from 3. Rock chalk, baby. Uh, Duke easily cruising past North Carolina. North Carolina is having a tough season. A.J. Griffin leading Duke with 27 points. Villanova beating UConn at home, the first of the two matchups in the Big East. Eric Dixon really looking good. Maybe the, the season saver for Villanova. He has 24-12. and 12. 
RJ Cole with 25 points in defeat for the Huskies. Rutgers upsetting uh, Michigan State. And not upsetting them, but blowing them out. Michigan State was ranked 13th at the time. They were led by uh, Gabe Brown, who had 20 points. The rest of the team couldn't score. And Rutgers shot 61% from the field, 45% from three. That's going to be hard to beat on any given night. Texas Tech squeaking by a very scrappy West Virginia team. I keep talking about how this is a very experienced West Virginia team that might be a team that you don't want to fuck with in the tournament. Uh, Texas Tech had 15 points from their leader, Bryson Williams. And West Virginia had 16 points from Jalen Bridges in defeat. What a good game in the Big 12 there. Texas uh, easily beating Iowa State. Iowa State on a skid. They ranked 20th, Texas 23rd at the time. Um, Isaiah Brockington with 12 and 8 on 17 shots for the Cyclones. Texas was led by uh, Marcus Carr with 14 points and 8 assists. Some Big 12 action. And then Xavier loses to DePaul. Xavier was ranked 21 at the time. Paul Scruggs did get 21 and 6, um, but DePaul found a way to win. LSU, 25th ranked at the time, suffers defeat, defeat to Vanderbilt. Eric Gaines had 14 points for um, LSU, but Vanderbilt was led by Rodney Chapman, who had 24 and 3. So lots of action on Saturday. Moving into Sunday, nothing noteworthy. Monday, Arizona State handling Arizona State on the road. Azulis Tubilis, 19 and 11 for Arizona. Virginia shocks Duke, seventh ranked Duke, 69 to 68. Virginia was led by, whoops, was led by Jaden Gardner, who had 17 and 8. Duke was led by Mark Williams, who had 16 points. Paolo Banchero had 9 and 9 um, on 9 shots. Tough game for him. Texas beating Kansas, a huge upset in the Big 12. That conference play, you never know sometimes. Uh, Texas was led by Timmy Allen, who had 24 points, 9 rebounds. Kansas was led by McCormick, who had 16 and 7. They also had uh, Jalen Wilson for 18 and 11. Obaji had 11 points on 7 shots. Texas with the big upset win. Yesterday, Arkansas, number one in the nation, gets upset by the Razorbacks, 80-76. to 76. Uh, Jabari Smith had 20 points, 9 rebounds on 16 shots. Couldn't do enough to will his team to victory. Um, J.D. Note took this game over for the Razorbacks. He had 28 points on 20 shots. The number one team goes down. Really fun game for me. Purdue really handling Illinois and I thought Illinois was starting to be the team. I thought they would be a for sure top 10 team, a for sure probably two team and number two team in the bracket because of Kofi Coburn coming back. He had 18 and seven gotten foul trouble, but it just shows that they're not dynamic enough to compete at a high level. Purdue handled them pretty easily and Jaden Ivey did his thing. He had 26 points. He was two of five from three big game from the Boilermakers yesterday. Wisconsin beating uh, Michigan State 70-62. to uh, They were flying high with Johnny Davis, who had 25-6. and six. 
on 11 shots, and the Spartys were led by Bingham Jr., who had 15 points in defeat. Villanova beating St. John's. Got to shout out Eric Dixon again. The big man's coming into his own. He had 16 and 7. And a nice big, uh, big East matchup as UConn upends Marquette. UConn was 24, Marquette 18. Marquette was led by Oliver Maxence Prosper with 18 points in defeat. And the Huskies were led by um, Adam, Adama Sanago, who had 24 and 15. RJ Cole only had 9 and 5, but the Huskies still beat a very good Marquette team. And then St. Mary's drops to Santa Clara, 77 to 72. Again, I told you they were overrated entering the rankings. Um, PJ Pipes led Santa Clara with 21 points to beat the ranked team. That must be fun for them. And then today, let's see. Baylor beat Kansas State pretty handily. Houston loses to SMU. I'm validated even more. They lose to SMU 85 to 83. Um, SMU shot 52% from three. That's tough. Houston shot pretty well. All five starters in double digits, but they go down to SMU. That makes me feel better. Rutgers again. Oh my goodness. Rutgers beating the Buckeyes, the 16th ranked Ohio State. EJ Liddell with 16 points in defeat. Rutgers shot 33% from three this time, so not as crazy. But the, the dang, the freaking Scarlet Knights, man. That's wild. Uh, beating the Buckeyes on the road. That's a huge win for them. And then Seton Hall beating Xavier. They were 25th ranked. Uh, Jared Roden with 25-8 and eight for Seton Hall. Paul Scruggs with 21-7-7 seven and seven in defeat. Uh, Tennessee is playing Mississippi State close. Texas Tech losing to Oklahoma in a potential upset. So, yeah, some teams. My overrateds, I've been feeling pretty good about all year. Arizona's on a roll right now. Uh, looking into the weekend, UConn and Xavier play. That's going to be a good Big East game and two ranked teams. Texas is hot right now. They'll take on Baylor, see if Baylor can get back on track on Saturday. Arizona's playing in Washington, if you, if you guys want to watch Arizona play here in Seattle. UCLA um, playing USC. St. Mary's playing Gonzaga. That's always somewhat interesting for some reason. Before next week. And then Providence-Villanova. That's a huge game in the Big East. Is Providence up top? We'll see if they are actually as overrated as I think they are. And then Wednesday, Baylor-Texas Tech. So things are getting interesting in college basketball. Watch out. Watch out. But we got to talk about some Supercross, man. The Triple Crown, first triple, cl triple Crown event of the season in Glendale, Arizona. And the 250, the points leader, Christian Craig, won race one and three. Uh, Lawrence scored a win in the second race. But really, the top dogs owned the show in this one and furthered themselves in points. Again, it's really top heavy in the 250. Uh, Christian Craig got a first, second, or a first two times and a fourth. Hunter Lawrence got a second, a first, and a, uh, a second, a second, and a first. Joe Shimoda got a fifth, a third, and a third. I always talk about Joe because he was a preseason favorite of mine. I like his riding. Uh, points leaders now Christian Craig at 122. Hunter Lawrence in second, eight back at 114. Moseman in third at 99. Joe Shimoda in fourth at 87. So it's really Craig and Lawrence separating themselves. For the 450 class, there was a lot of different outcomes. But Tomac, Stewart, and Sexton were the most consistent. 
Uh, Tomac was fast out the gates. He's looking nice in that Yamaha bike. He's really coming into his own. Um, he got two wins in a third. Sexton finished 11th in the first race, but got the podium twice with the third and first. And Jason Anderson got two seconds. Malcolm Stewart with a 3-2-4. What's that put us in points? Well, Eli Tomac's in first at 111. The young buck, Chase Sexton on the Honda, only 11 back at 100. Jason Anderson, four back at 96. Stewart, nine, uh, three back at 93. Barsha, four back at 89. Cooper Webb, uh, one back at 88. Ken Roxon, eight back at 80. And Moose Cannon, eighth at 80 as well. So my favorite racer, one of the preseason favorites, Ken Roxon, looking, looking a little down and out there. Uh, Cooper Webb falling a little ways back as well, but Eli Tomac and Chase Sexton running the show. I'm not too surprised. We'll see if Ken and Cooper can start making a run uh, the second half of the season. Round six this weekend is back in Anaheim, back in California. Uh, see if um, Ken Roxon can relive the, the Anaheim glory. Other hitters in sports. Michigan loses their offensive coordinator to Miami. He goes and takes the offensive coordinator role to Miami. He talked about if you're not loved, leave, yada, yada. So a little bit of drama there with Harbaugh. Uh, Jason Giambi has passed away at 47 years old. I love me some Jason Giambi. Some big league chew up in your mouth. Some nasty swings. Some powerful hits. Um, you know, blessings up to Jason Giambi and his family. He brought a lot of good times for us baseball fans. I can't wait for baseball to come back. Hopefully this lockout gets its shit together. Uh, Tre Trevor Bauer to have no criminal charges, but could still be suspended by the MLB. Will be interesting to see what happens there. I'm honestly not surprised about that. Um, and then we had some Olympics action. Mikhail Kingsbury took silver in the men's mogul finals. You know, he was looking for a, another gold and, a, and a, to be one of the most decorated gold athletes in the Winter Olympics. Uh, Walter Wahlberg got gold, and Ikuma Horishima got the bronze. Uh, Michaela Schifrin, Schifrin, one of the bigger U.S. athletes in the Winter Olympics, got a did-not-finish out of the giant slalom and in the slalom. I don't know. Watching this, man, the fake snow is so damn bad. These Olympic athletes, you know, especially from around the world, have different snow conditions. The way they perform on these big jumps and no snow is crazy. For me, I need some powder to, to give me some cushion and have some fun. Uh, but this is so bad. You could hear it. It's all fake snow, obviously. You could see the event with the snow and the Beijing's all industrial. And it's just a fucking weird sight, man. How these places get Winter Olympics is kind of crazy. Um, I do think the snow had something to do with it, though, honestly. Irene West won gold in the women's 1,500-meter speed skating and now has won gold at five different Olympics. And she's almost 36 years old, the oldest gold medalist in Olympic speed skating history. So bravo to Irene. In women's slope style, Zoe Sadowski won gold as Jamie Anderson took some falls and couldn't get onto the podium. Uh, was really hoping she could get one more on her last dance. Julia Marino got a silver for USA and Tess Cody got a bronze. Uh, Zoe Sadowski was a wild card for the... Uh, uh, natural selection tour last year tore it up really built her brand and i'm not surprised she won the woman's slope style and the men's slope style max perot got gold yaming su was silver and mark mcmorris with the bronze i was i was rooting for mark mcmorris he didn't compete in the super uh natural selection tour that he won last year
because of the Olympics. And Red Gerard filled the podium to pull out the hat trick for gold and men's slope style. Um, also, Chloe Kim, I believe, won gold today. I saw this when I was looking for it. Let me double check that. Second straight gold medal. I could tell for the qualifying, she's just that much better. I had watched the Sean White qualifier as well. He wrecked in his first run. You have to be the top 12 to make the cut. He killed his second run, got a pretty good score. But it's going to be fun to see how Sean White does in his last round, kind of like Jamie Anderson. He's got a bunch of young, young kids. Those Japanese kids can fly high in the sky, but it's going to be fun. And this weekend, you know, being a Wyoming boy, the battle of the king and queen of Corbett's in Jackson Hole is going down, which is a ton of fun. Corbett's has got that crazy drop, uh, but the snow conditions might make it interesting. Uh, so that'll be streamed somewhere live, I'm sure. But that's it. Episode 68, Business and Buckets, UFC this weekend, Super Bowl Sunday. It's going to be fun. Get some friends, get some loved ones, get some chicken wings, and do your thing. See you guys next week.